0: we're in the middle is kid stories <laughs> kid stories that aren't really kid stories somehow we've adapted them for kids but at the core of most of the stories of the flood noah uh, ark and jonah there's some crazy stuff going on and the uh, case is the same for uh the conquest of jericho you know this story right the, uh, Joshua takes the baton from Moses. Uh, they move into the promised land. And one of the first things they do is they encounter this city, Jericho, and comes along with its own little song. The walls will come, come them down, that whole that thing. <laughs> and that, that's, that's the nature of the kids thing. There's a lot of walking around, a lot of blowing of horns, a lot of yelling, and then the walls come down and, yay, we conquered a city. That's it. What's left out of the kids' version is, uh, well, it's understandable why it's left out of the kids' version. Uh, there 's a uh, woman of ill repute at the center of the story. Um, there is mass circumcision, and there 's some significantly violent rhetoric from God that we 've going to have to look into here um I don't know, do you guys watch, do you guys see, uh, you know, The Bible Project with Tim Mackey? Uh, if, you, if you look it up, you're going to find some incredible resources, and I'm going to share one with you this morning. He's got an eight-minute video that sort of recaps Joshua. I'm going to show you just a couple minutes of that, give you a taste of it. He's going to do quickly what it would take me too long to do. Uh, but check it out. If you, if you missed this, it's just, just go to The Bible Project and look up a book of the Bible, and you'll find what you need. This one's Joshua. So watch this video, just a couple minutes, a little recap of first part of Joshua.
1: The book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham, and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died and Israel's ready to enter the land. So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the promised land and then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites and so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the 12 tribes. And then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in and we'll see how all of it flows together. The first section begins with Moses' death and Joshua is appointed as Israel's new leader. And the author intentionally presents Joshua as a new leader. Moses. So like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the Torah, which means the covenant commands that they were given at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua sends spies into the land, just as Moses did back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, except it goes way better this time. In fact, even some Canaanites turn and follow the God of Israel. Joshua then leads all Israel across the Jordan River and into the land. Just like the sea parted for Moses in the Exodus, So here, the River Jordan parts and the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across, leading all Israel with them. Now, in chapter 5, the story transitions. So the people look back to their roots as God's covenant people. And so the new generation is circumcised and they celebrate their first Passover in the land. But then they turn and prepare to go forward. And Joshua has this crazy encounter with a mysterious warrior who, it turns out, is the angelic commander of God's army. And Joshua asks, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the warrior responds, neither. Which shows that the real question here is whether Joshua is on God's side. It makes clear that this whole story is not about Israel versus the Canaanites. Rather, this is God's battle. And Israel is going to play the role of spectators or sometimes supporters in God's plan. Okay,
0: that's good. So there you have it. It's real. There's no Sesame Street characters, no Big Bird, there's no Elmo, there's nothing like that. It's just for real that this stuff is is happening. Um, I don't know if you caught it, the, the tail end of that, uh, that answer from the commander of the Lord's army, when he says whose side, asks whose side, and he says neither, I, that's a big deal. You can begin to imagine the cultural implications of that answer for us in today's world is as meaningful as it was back then. And we're going to get to that uh, next week. This week, I want to just continue to sort of tap into these first few chapters and give you some idea of what's going on and how it relates to us today. It's a story that happened a long time ago. A lot of stuff is hard to get your head around, but if you do and, and when you do, it really, really makes a difference in your life or could make a difference in your life today so let's let's try to pick through this all right so in the first chapter of joshua we're dealing with the fact that moses is gone the baton's been handed off to joshua and uh lord tells moses to get the people ready that he's going to take them across the river this is a big big moment It's even bigger than the one that we're going to have in a couple weeks where we're going to finally go across the river into a space that we have been promised and we've been looking forward to. This has been a 40-year thing, and here it is. They're actually going to go across there, and God is saying, I'm going to give you all the land back that was originally intended to be yours in the first place. Wherever you go, that's going to happen. He goes on and says, I need you to be strong. I need you to be courageous. I need you to be careful to obey the law of the servant Moses. All that that I gave you. Don't turn from the right or to the left, and you'll be successful wherever you go. A lot is going to change. A lot is going to change. They're going to be in a completely different mode of life. They're going to be in a completely different space. And God is anticipating that there are going to be threats and temptations unlike what they've ever faced before. They've been a little bit cloistered to this point right? They've been hanging out with themselves predominantly for 40 years. And suddenly they're going to be hanging out with a lot more people. And what's important to God is to make sure he says, even though you're going across the river and we're leaving this behind and going forward, the behind needs to stay with you. You need to continue to obey. God has spent 40 years teaching his people, helping his people understand who he is helping them to hear his voice and to know his voice, helping them to understand how it is they are to live. And he's saying, don't forget any of that. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. You're going to be tempted. Stay the course of obedience that I've built with you. Be who I have created you to be. It is utterly important as you begin to do what I'm calling you to do. The being is extremely important. Don't turn to the left or right. It's hard, right? Isn't it? There's practical application right there. Yes. Do you feel that? Can you not feel that? Do you feel that in your work? You feel that on your teams? Do you feel that in every conversation you're in? The end? do you feel that in your decisions and your, and your planning this temptation to turn to the left or the right, the things that you know God has directed you to do and how he's directed you to be. Don't you feel that tension on a daily basis to turn to the left or the right? Really pretty much everything we do as a church is, is is designed in order to keep us singularly devoted to Him. Why do we gather on Sunday morning? to lift him up, to raise God up, to reorient our eyes to him, to gather together, to unify on this one thing. Why do we gather in small groups during the week? Because we need it through the week, and we need to engage and talk about the, the pull to the left and the pull to the right in very real ways with one another so we can help each other stay the course, right? Every third Thursday, we, do a, uh, we gather together. Again, for the same purposes, we worship and we pray Join us. The next one is the 15th of this month, and we're going to be thinking about all that God is calling us to do as we establish ourselves again in the Northwest. What, what does that mean for us? What, how do you want us to engage the community? So come and be a part of remembering who he is and what he's called us to do. Even, even the 40-day devotion, uh, even the 40-day series, it's starting, I think, really well, the week after that, the 18th. Uh, is built in order to help us with our single-eyed devotion toward God. I'd love for you to be a part of that new series and that 40-day study, which is through what's commonly known as the, the Lenten season that leads up to Easter. He says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Be who I have called you to be in the midst of doing what I've called you to do. So Joshua, he orders all the officers of the people go through the camp and tell them to get the provisions ready, and in three days we're going to cross the River Jordan. Sounds like, do you imagine that in your head? He gets some officers and he goes, go tell the people we're going to go across the river. You know how many people they were telling? About two million. I don't know how many officers that is, but that, that's as many people as in metropolitan Columbus. Can you imagine me just telling you, hey, go tell Columbus that we're going to move across, like... I don't even know how that gets done, but he says, look, go do it, and we're going to do it in three days. The officers go about their business. They also tell Joshua uh, that he should continue to be strong and courageous. And they say, whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, and they're talking about the two million people that are the Israelites, whoever make, whatever you command them, if they don't do it, we're going to put them to death. Be strong and courageous. Those are pretty harsh words. Our own people, well, what's going on there? Well, it's a, it's a foreshadowing a little bit of the kinds of harsh languages that, language, the rhetoric, that starts to come out in the whole book of Joshua. But the, the clear message, apart from the shocking nature of it, is they're saying, you are the authoritative leader of our gang right now. And we're going to not only remind the people to go, you ready to go across the river, we're going to let everybody know that you're God's man for right now and we're following you. Chapter two is where the spies go in and start to figure things out and they interact with this uh, woman and she passes along some information to them. Listen to what she says. A great fear of you has fallen us, on us so that all who live in this country are melting uh, because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, which was 40 years ago. When you came out of Egypt. And we heard what you did in uh, Sion and Og, which are two cities just east of the uh, Jordan, and this would have been not really very long ago. How they took out the kings and the Amorites, the east, and, and whom you completely destroyed. They're afraid. Yeah. That's the intended purpose of the reports. That's why it was reported the way it was reported, it was completely destroyed. Even if it actually wasn't completely destroyed, their understanding is that this army of Israel is on a rampage. Can you imagine how these accounts and the style in which they were conveyed decades after the fact probably came about? I wonder what those stories actually sounded like that had been passed along. Probably like some of my stories. When I tell you a story, it's mostly what happened. There's a nugget of truth in there, but I'm trying to get you to connect to something deeper than the facts. And sometimes I have to speak about that and talk about that and share the story in a way that gets you to engage on the level that is truly what happened. And it's hard to uh, marshal the right words together to get the right thing across. So they, they have worked very hard and, the, and the, 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 the right effect has happened. We all face this to, to explain the wonderful things that God has done. Think about how difficult it is even to tell someone what you have been hearing from God, what, how He has instructed you in your life in a certain way or in a certain situation. It's very hard to find the words to do that. It's difficult. But we do try. And sometimes we exaggerate, again, in order to get the point across. You've got to remember, I think it's important. Biblical authors, they're not Jesus, they're human like you and me. They suffer from the same limitations of language. They struggle with some of the same immaturities. It's just reality. Now, on the other hand, those realities don't negate the accuracy and the trustworthiness of scripture. Literary styles and limitations of language exist, but they don't obscure the essence of God's words and his intentions that, to me, is one of the most amazing things about Scripture, one of the most incredible things, that in spite of human frailties, constraints, immaturities, not only in the, in the, uh, in the uh, re- receiving from God what it is he wants to make it, but in the, in the reading and the listening. <laughs> Even in the perfection of Scripture, when I approach it, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I, I misunderstand. I can't quite figure it out. it's, It's a God thing to be able to bring his truth to bear through scripture in exactly the way that he wants to do precisely in the way that he wants to do it in the midst of the frailties and the limitations that are upon us to try to do that. And we see it all through the scriptures, people trying to communicate the magnificence of God, the power of God. The intentions of God Joshua says uh, in chapter 3 then they get they're, they're starting to get ready for this thing and he knows what's going to happen he knows the plan and he says what's going to happen out there is going to be uh, there because uh, this way you will know he says that the living God is among you we're going to we're not just going to cross the river we're going to cross the river in a way that's going to blow your mind and he starts to convey it. He says, as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, this is the sort of the, the home of the Spirit of God at the time in the, in the Ten Commandments, in the Ark, the Lord, of the—is the, as soon as those priests set foot in the Jordan, its waters are going to be flowing downstream, will be cut off. The waters that are flowing down will be cut off and they will stand up in a heap. Well, what's going to happen is literally a watershed moment. I wrote that down. I wrote, this is a watershed moment. I was like, oh no, it's an actual watershed moment. It's not just a big moment, it's not just a huge shift. The, the waters are literally going to be held up. They're going to be reminded of the Red Sea. And these priests are going to be standing out there in the middle of that with the Ark of the Covenant. It's a it is a huge moment. It, it's, it's the culmination of a promise. It's a transition of leadership, it's a, a manifestation of God's power, it's a new phase of existence, it's a covenantal renewal. And sure enough, it happens. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan, stood on dry, dry. As soon as they stepped in, it started backing up. And when they walked down in the middle, they were standing on dry ground. And while all of Israel passed by, the whole nation had completed this crossing on dry land. I wanted to draw a comparison here um, with these priests to our worship leaders, the worship leaders in God's church today. It's a lot of distinctions, to be sure. They're not the exact same thing, but there are a lot of similarities. Here's what I was thinking. They both do the spiritual work of calling people into the presence of God. And then sending them into daily life empowered by God. That's what the priests were doing. They were calling people into the presence of God, was holding back the waters that would seek to destroy them and creating a pathway to the promised land, and they were there in the center of it, vulnerably. I mean, that, that had to that, tell me that is in a very vulnerable situation. <laughs> There's a wall of water not being held back by anything visible. I think our worship leaders probably feel that way, at least to some degree, quite a bit. It's a huge responsibility. We say, hey, can you usher us into the presence of God? Well, I don't, I don't sing as great as I want to. I don't play as great as I want to. I'm not as good with words as I want to be. But you certainly would feel this pressure to be absolutely perfect if you're representing God and drawing other people in. It's a very vulnerable space. It's a vulnerable job. No one ever knows exactly what God's going to do. We know the story that they all made it across. Well, They didn't know that that was going to happen. They didn't know when that wall was going to come down. They didn't know if they were moving fast enough. Don't you think the priests were going, okay, let's go, let's hurry this along, let's go. (laughs) Two million people with all their stuff and their kids, kids playing in the water, please don't do that. Don't touch the water. Can you imagine? There's a wall of water and kids are like digging at it. No, don't. No. Let's go. We don't know what's going to happen. Could go horribly bad. Microphones might not work. Sound systems might not work. I might, I might, get, a, I might you may, may get dry in the throat. But we said, you need to usher us into the presence of God. I just want to say to the worship leaders of this church, thank you. Thank you for ushering us in. Thank you for the vulnerability that you um, embrace, that you face week in and week out. Thanks for the work that you do to ensure that your heart is right when you come to this moment and so that you can direct our hearts to be right. Thank you for your caring and your diving into scripture and your praying and your giving. And I, and I watch them step up, all of them, without hesitation, Uh, in the midst of the changes of the past few weeks. No hesitation whatsoever. What do you need? It's phenomenal. I love you guys. Okay, so um, the priests, then in chapter four, this thing happens uh, after they get across. um, They send somebody, they send some people back, and Joshua says, go back in there and get stones from the middle of the Jordan, uh, right where the priests are standing, and then carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. We know, we've seen this in scriptures before. It's called an Ebenezer. Why? I don't know. I think, uh, we sing that song and I think, does everybody know what we're singing there? Everybody's saying the word Ebenezer right now. That's what it is. It's a statue. It's a remembrance. It's a stacking of stones. And that's what they're doing. They're going to take these 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes, and they're going to stack them there so that they remember. So Joshua says, we do this so that all the peoples of the earth, not just us, might know That the hand of the Lord is powerful, so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Do you do that? Do you stack stones? Do you write things down? Do you remember what God has done in the past? Because we have a tendency to forget. We have long memories for bad stuff and very short memories for good stuff, usually. Stack some stones, write some things down, buy a picture, take a picture, frame a picture. Right, Wear a wristband, you know, whatever. Remember the things that God has done. It's extremely important, not just for you, but for what God's trying to do uh, in, in the world. Stack some stones. When all, uh, in Gen chapter five, it starts to get um, nutty, really. The Amorite kings west of the Jordan and the Canaanite kings along the coast, All uh, in addition to knowing about what happened at the Red Sea and what happened to the cities east of the Jordan, Now they hear about this water building up and the whole two million people coming across and they are losing their minds. Their hearts melted in fear. They no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. And here's where things started to get messy, like literally messy. There's no better time to attack than when your enemy lacks confidence. Even better when their hearts are weak and and fear is debilitating. Y'all know that. And it, and it makes sense, right? So the the they're, 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 the, the enemy's like waning. They're 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 scared. They're afraid. And the Lord says to Joshua, "Make flint kn- flint knives." This is this makes sense. So get your get your weapons ready. And then circumcise the Israelites again. <laughs> so they attack themselves basically right out of the blocks. They made flint knives and. after the whole nation had been circumcised. They remained where they were at camp until they were healed. We're talking about male of the of the nation of Israel and probably even particularly those that were going to go into battle. We're talking like half a million. That's a mess. And as random as weird as it may seem, We have to understand this because what happened in that moment is required of every follower of God, in a manner of speaking. We'll get to that, it's a metaphor, not the actual. But we all need to be in that space. It has to do with the offerings of life, uh, of your life to God. It has to do with your time and your tithe and your talents, which scripture often refers to as your worship. What's going on here is an evidence of devotion out of which your life comes. But hold that thought. We have to understand some other significantly difficult things to capture this. It's gonna be very difficult for me to try to get this across. Theologians have been talking about the the violence of God in the chapters of Joshua and some of the surrounding texts forever, and it's very difficult to get your, your head around it. But it's important to understand on some level. I won't be able to do it justice. I don't even understand it all myself. It goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is when they're east of the Jordan. Still have the same directives from God. And listen to what they sound like. This is God speaking. In the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy everybody. Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, on, and on. As the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Wipe out everything that breathes. God's beginning to explain it very clear right now. His intention is to preserve the purity of their devotion. What he said, I taught you in the desert, I need that to be sustained, and I need it to be pure. I need you to practice what's been instituted. And in order to do that, you need to wipe out everything else that's going to work against you. Everything that breathes. And the history records that's what they did. Joshua chapter 6. Listen, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing. Men, women, young, old, cattle, sheep, donkeys. This is beyond disturbing. Am I right? It's nearly impossible to assimilate it unhinges everything we want to be true about God. Who we know God to be from the incarnate God himself, Jesus, of who God is. It flies in the face of that, of his love and his mercy. These commands say, show no mercy. How is that possible with a merciful God? Like I said, there's a dozen ways to square this up theologically. Theologically. One of the most instructive to me is how the extremes of the commands were never fully accomplished. The rhetoric of the historic accounts match the directives. Like the directives say, wipe it out, exterminate it. And the history says, we wiped it out, we exterminated it. And the reality is, they didn't. (laughs) What do you make of that? It's not too different than the amped-up football coach in his pregame speech. The hurt we're gonna put on that other team is gonna be written about for years. Leave it all on the field. Take no prisoners. And then the post-game adrenaline of the locker room, we did it, we just totally crushed those guys. Unbelievable. And the score is like 23 to 21. This is pretty commonplace literary stuff. Just do a quick Google search. You'll find this all over the place. One of the most popular is Egyptians versus the Hittites. It's one of the best documented military engagements known for unbelievable, grandiose, exaggerated accounts. Inscriptions, paintings provide this glorified narrative emphasizing the valor and the near divine qualities of Ramesses II records show that he almost single-handedly charged into the midst of the Hittite forces and it's great victory you know how the battle ended pretty inconclusively heavy losses on both sides ended in a truce you would never see that in the history it's pretty common Again, back to what we said before. God is trying to 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 communicate something very, very important. Speaks in violent extreme terms, expects them to come. But we don't know exactly what is intended, but we see the re- end result doesn't match. For example, wipe out the city totally, and then a few verses later it says, and then after it's all over, make sure not to intermarry. With what? Corpse? There's something else going on. There's something much deeper going on here. Here's what we see throughout, throughout the Joshua and, and other parts of the Old Testament as they were taking the land back. We see kings being taken down for sure, either displaced or dead. We see a new way of life being ordered alongside the former occupiers, actually. And more often than not, we see the Israelites failing to follow God's directives more so than the others. That's what actually comes about. Like I said, there's so much scholarship on this, so much that tries to assimilate this extreme language from God. But hear what, hear this. What might be more important is that it doesn't need to be squared up. It actually doesn't need to be squared up. Let me try to get this across. There is no purity where there is even the slightest hint of impurity, right? You have something that's pure, if there's even the slightest bit of impurity, it's not pure, right, by definition, for holiness to remain holy for purity and perfection to remain as they are all holiness impurity imperfection must be what if you want something to be perfect pure and holy what must happen to imperfection impurity and unholiness it has to be eradicated it has to be destroyed I want to say the holiness of God is by necessity more than motivation violent in a manner of speaking. Imagine a 30-gallon, that's like a like a garbage can full, like a 30-gallon cauldron of hot, molten, pure gold. Smooth, rich, shimmering, compelling treasure of stunning beauty and unequaled worth. Like 30 gallons of liquid gold would be like two and a half tons. 127 million dollars. And 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty hot. That's like all the way 10 on your oven. What's up there? Two thousand degrees. Now, what if that molten ga- lava was poured out into a dumpster full of old food, empty cans, broken car parts, fallen tree limbs, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Imagine two thousand degree liquid, thirty gallons, two and a half tons poured into a dumpster of trash. How would you describe what would be happening in that dumpster? Violent. Yeah. Yeah, I would. That's going to be pretty violent. The violent rhetoric of God captures not only the unacceptable, but the impossible commingling of unholiness and holiness, disobedience with devotion, impurity and purity. It just by nature, like the gold, is violent. Do you understand what I'm saying? No? Okay. Only as, we, I'll keep going. Only as we begin, it's a rhetorical question. Only as we begin to fathom the, indes- I'll say it this way, indescribable, incomprehensible majesty and power of the creator and sustainer of all things. Only as we begin to understand that majesty, can you begin to understand what would happen to the opposite of that in his presence? It would be violent. God's saying to Israel, as you move across Canaan, like the priest and the ark, I will go before you and with you like the violence of molten gold poured into the dumpster of unholiness. At a minimum, what we should take away from Joshua at Jericho and throughout the conquest of Canaan is a theology of God's commitment to and intensity when it comes to reestablishing his holy people and his kingdom in the land that was always intended for them. God will not be denied his intentions for shalom. God is going to put the world back the way it was supposed to be, pure, undefiled, worshipful, He's going to do it. He will not be thwarted. Anything that tries to get in his way or is the opposite of that is going to be blown away. Regardless of what God said, how he said it, what actually happened, what our sensibilities and theologies permit of us, we should understand God is God. He's not our bro upstairs. We have been reconciled through the blood and the work of Christ that he is now uh, uh, merciful through him. But he is still God. He will prevail ungodliness will be vanquished, his people will be purified, his kingdom will be established, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. In the end, all darkness, every form of evil, every last bit of ungodliness will be wiped out and the holy people of God will fill the earth and the heavens. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Jesus said to his disciples, I will build my church And the gates of hell will not overcome it. What that means is not even death, which is crazy. Everything in the world's dying. Y'all know that, right? Everything is fading, at least, except the church. The church of God is well. It is good. It is his, and it is advancing, and it will always advance until it is finished. Nothing will overcome it. The church and the people of God within whatever you want to call it, the violence of God, are the only survivors of this entire world. It is an unambiguous, absolute demand for undivided devotion, worship of God's people in God's presence, and it is all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 6 is one of our favorite passages. Isaiah sees God, high and lifted up. And what does he immediately do? He understands his own inadequacies, bows down. I am unworthy. He sees God high and lifted up, and he knows violence is on the way. I deserve it, and he bows down. Jesus said things like, if you love me, it will look like hatred. Your love to your family will look like hatred compared to me. That's a violence of of, of distinctions to think about. He said, you should should hate them in comparison to how much you love me. The rich young ruler, remember, he was obedient to the law. And when he was asked to give up the security of his resources for the sake of others, it exposed his true devotion to self. Jesus said to a, a, a rabble of people that were not living up to the standards of God at all, he said, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees who were perfect, And if you don't, you won't enter the kingdom of God. That's violent. If you're not better than perfect, you can't come in. He said, hey, if you go into church, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, and you've got an offense, you've got something that's impure between you and another person, there needs to be forgiveness or apology. Leave your gift on the altar. That's my alarm saying I'm done. So that means I got about seven more minutes. <clears throat> Just leave your gift in front of the altar. Go be reconciled and come back and offer your gift. Don't come in here with your hypocrisy. It doesn't work. Leave it. You should bring it. You should bring your worship. You should bring your service, your time, your tithe. But don't bring it when you have unfinished business Don't bring your unholiness in when you're delivering your holiness to me. As you approach me, as you approach worship, it must be pure. No hypocrisy. You must be pure in heart and motive, or it's unacceptable. How's that strike you? Don't worship in here. Don't come to worship if it's not pure, if it's not perfect. No hypocrisy. How do you measure measure up? How pure is your devotion? How perfect is your worship? How undivided is your heart? When you come into the presence of God, what do you expect? Do you expect violence or an embrace? What should you expect if there's any impurity at all? We all live compromised lives. Duplicitous sometimes. Sometimes we're not always horribly compromised. And we're not always compromised according to our standards. We all have lines too. Those lines aren't always God's lines. And we're thinking soberly, we realize we've become comfortable in the shadows and the corners of our lives. Yeah, we have limits. This is my lines, but to scrutiny, under scrutiny, we understand and we see that our limits are not God's limits. They're oftentimes our personal adaptations of God's limits. And if you're cunning, you'll accept low standards from peers and others, even leaders and authorities, because you know, somewhere deep down in your heart, if we can all get a universal commitment to low standards, then no criticism or judgment's probably gonna come my way. And I can feel like I'm pure and I'm good. But in the presence of God, our compromised hearts, our uncontainable self-interest, our generally sinful imaginations, and sneaky pursuits are grounds for destruction. You probably all don't mind if I wrap this up right, rather than quit right there. Where do we turn? What can we do? Well, this obviously brings us back to mass circumcision. This ritual that they went through did three things in particular. Number one, it marked them as his own. It checked their mochismo at the river and it provided a prioritization of rest. It marked them as his own. They belonged to him. The performance and the outcomes of what was to come had nothing to do with that. He wanted them to know, just like by the other side of the river, on this side of the river, that he spent 40 years teaching them who he was, how to be his, and that what was most important. And was not changing is that they would always and forever be his. He needed them to know that, in a painful sort of a way, in a way that marked them forever. You're mine. You belong to me, no matter what happens. He checked their machismo at the river. He hobbled them and he humbled them. He can't fight once that's happened, not very quickly. God is not looking for our self-confidence to propel us forward. We depend on that quite a bit. If we don't feel confident, we oftentimes don't take steps of faith. God's saying to them, I'm not looking for that. In fact, I can, I can take away your confidence, and I still need you to live by faith. In fact, it's better that way. He wasn't looking for his people to be motivated by their ingenuity or their strength. Self-confidences aren't the propulsion God is in search of for those that are heading into his battles. He wanted their vulnerability to be answered by faith. He wanted their vulnerability to be answered by trust in his wisdom and his strength. What he wants from you and from me is humble service, honest devotion, worship above anything else that we have to offer, no matter how incredible you might be. That is not what God is looking for in you. He's looking for your faith and your trust in spite of the honest assessment of what we have to offer. And they got rest, actually. This would have been the absolute best time to attack. We talked about that, but instead they had to rest and heal up and remember that they were his, that they were marked, that it wasn't their strength that mattered. And they came out of that battle, their perspectives were ideally where they should be. And I ask you again, what about you? What about me? Are we ready to worship? Are we ready to experience the full force of God's holy presence? Listen to what Paul says to the Philippians. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Do you know what it means to be an enemy of the cross? It means to imagine you and God are good to go without any solution for your impurity, your lackluster devotion, and your imperfect worship. Do you hear me? To be an enemy of the cross is to think you don't need it. To be an enemy of the cross is to seek credit for your own godliness. To be an enemy of the cross is to be propelled by your own self-confidence. To be an enemy of the cross is to be opposed to humiliation and vulnerability. That's what it was. To be an enemy of the cross is to deny the need for a savior. And Paul describes here in tears that when you're an enemy of the cross, you're signing off on your own destruction. You can't survive it. You can't survive the presence of God apart from the cross. To be saved by the cross, to be rescued by Jesus, is to understand the violence that was done so that you don't have to endure it. To be saved by the cross, to be rescued by Jesus is to be authentic about your shortcomings, failures, inadequacies, and to receive the grace and mercy of God in Jesus in spite of it all. It is to accept our insufficiencies, our defeats as prerequisites for the glory of God. It is to be propelled by faith and confidence in him. It is to get out of the way of God so he can work and get all of the credit it is for people to see god in your life and to be confused by that do you hear me people should go wow god really showed up in your life i know your life and you go yeah that's the cross it is to rest to love the cross is to rest in what's already been done and the in the god who is self sufficient That he includes you, not because he needs us, but because he enjoys us. To be circumcised now is to belong to God by the work of Christ on the cross and to be marked by the spirit of God within. I'll finish with this. Jesus said to worship in spirit and truth. When you're in trouble when the waters are coming down the banks of the river. Worship, serve, gather, give, love, pray, sing, read, trust without hesitation in Christ because you are utterly safe in him. No violence is coming your way irrespective of what we deserve. Worship when you're in trouble. When God feels distant, worship, serve, gather, give, love, pray, sing, read, trust without hesitation because you know he's always near and you will find him. When you see no way, worship, serve, give, gather, love, pray, sing, read, trust, remembering Christ is the way and God will make a way gather together every third Thursday. Come back next week. For sure, we're going to say goodbye to Tammy and Lonnie, which we thought we were going to do two weeks ago, and then they both got really super sick. We want to say goodbye, and we love them. We're so thankful for how they stood in the gap. Do you realize Tammy Botkin stood in the gap for us basically for four years during COVID? I'm so thankful. Worship, church worship. It's been great to remember we can worship in Christ. let just sing one more song and wrap it up. Be good.